The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More than 10 years ago now, my wife and I lived in Brooklyn, and we commuted every morning to Midtown Manhattan to our jobs. I can remember one night, must have been a weekend, that we actually took the effort to take the subway up to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and we stayed there for a while. And, And then just as it was closing, we were going home, and it was late at night, we were walking to the subway, and we were passing the apartments and the buildings where people lived who were lucky enough to live within walking distance of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I can remember thinking at the time that how lucky those people are to be able to live that close to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But also I thought, well, if I had been that lucky to live so close to this museum, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I wouldn't have the same interests. I wouldn't uh, be looking into poetry or art or writing or history or religion in quite the same way. And while on the one hand that's true, I wouldn't have been looking at those things in quite the same way just because of what my circumstances would have been, what my opportunities, they would have been different. But what I really meant uh, walking home that day was that the, the larger story behind that was that when my wife and I planned to move to New York City, it sounded very romantic. Uh, we would be living in Brooklyn. We would be working in New York City. It sounded incredible, the idea of it. But because of the temperament that we have and because of the kinds of jobs that we had and just because of the people that we were, uh, we weren't really made for it. Um, it wasn't really the place for us, and I sort of regret ever living there. It just wasn't the right place for us to be. And so that what I really meant as I was walking home that night, uh, exhausted from another week of work and exhausted by the subway uh, that took us to the museum and not really looking forward to the long subway home, The idea that I had, however mistaken and misconceived, was that people who are rich enough to live so close to the Metropolitan Museum of Art can't possibly appreciate it as much as I do, because uh, for me to come here, it's a struggle. For me to live here is a struggle. And 
it means that much more to me because it is a struggle. And someone who doesn't have that struggle or someone who has a completely different struggle but who has basically all of their money taken care of for them, um, this museum can't possibly mean as much to them as it does to me. Uh, art or religion or history can't possibly mean as much to them as it does to me. And I think behind that too was just the idea they can't possibly be as intelligent as I am. And of course that's all ridiculous. And what I wanted to do tonight is a sort of sequel to a, an episode I did last year called Jealousy. This would be Jealousy Part 2. Because all of this came up after the essayist and novelist Joan Didion died. And I was really struck by this, this notion of jealousy, this idea that I had walking home from a museum in Manhattan more than 10 years ago, because I realized uh, as I was reading the obituaries of Joan Didion that uh, I don't remember exactly where she and her husband lived in Manhattan, but they did live in Manhattan. Uh, and she was living proof uh, against uh, that strange bias, that strange but understandable prejudice that I had, that no one who is rich enough to live in this place could possibly, etc., etc. Because Didion was an extremely humane person, and she was uh, well off by anybody's standards in America, I would say. But she was also an astonishing writer, an astonishing observer. And uh, she got it just about as well as anybody. And I was, and I, and I used, once I realized that, I used her death in the obituaries and what I was able to learn about her as a way of reflecting on the kind of jealousy that I'm talking about. I ended up listening to a, an audiobook of, of hers uh, a Year of Magical Thinking, The Year of Magical Thinking that she wrote uh, after her husband died. And it was about the first year of mourning, of living without him. And I was struck very much by uh, another version of that jealousy. And that was this, that she is able to write about her husband's life and her life with him with such detail and also just, I guess, just detail, just careful and loving detail. But at the same time, it is an immensely infuriating book because, and uh, I will not use my own words here, this is from a review of it at the time. Um, it says that uh, in that book, as she is thinking about her life with her husband and her daughter, who was also near death at the time. Uh, this, is, this comes from a review of Didion's book. The reviewer says, she can't help pointing out that she is the chairman of her co-op board. She can't help but name the store in Beverly Hills where she bought a robe, or that her agent gets busy on the phone with the chief obituary writer for the New York Times within hours of her husband's death. She can't help that she and her husband, uh, she can't help mentioning that she and her husband dined at chic places like Morton's in the Bistro, 
where they were given the coveted corner table when they were in Los Angeles. And she takes her access to power for granted, saying, if my mother was suddenly hospitalized in Tunis, I could arrange for the American consul to get her onto an Air France flight to meet my brother in Paris. And in between this, uh, she is left to bear the indignities imposed by paramedics and social workers uh, that usually are only imposed upon ordinary folk. And it's true, there's a, there's a, 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 a strange sense of her not of bragging, but not of even knowing that she's bragging, not of even noticing that she might be uh, talking in a way that sounds completely ridiculous to someone who does not have uh, her station in life. And there's a wonderful uh, anecdote at the end where she mentions going to a New York Knicks game. And of course, she can't help mentioning that the tickets for the game uh, came directly from the NBA commissioner. And it goes on and on like that. And and I realized that the kind of jealousy that I feel towards that kind of easy expression about wealth or about knowing people by their first knowing famous people or uh, influential politicians by their first name so well that you can just mention their first name in your book about them in passing. I realize this is the same kind of jealousy and unease that many people have these days about people in politics or people in the media. There is really the sense of being had or being taken advantage of somehow. And when you read a book, or in my case, if you listen to a book, like Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking, the, the impression that I came away with not only was that she was a great writer and that she and her husband were a wonderful couple and were obviously in love until uh, the, the entire time they were married, it was also the sense of why is, uh, even if he was a saint, why is this guy, why is Joan Didion's husband the one who gets this magnificent book written about him? It seems that uh, all of us could write a similar book about someone that we have lost. All of us could write a similar book mentioning our own friends or the places that we've been to offhand by first name, casually, as if everyone should know the people that we knew or the books that we've read or the places that we've lived or the places we've traveled to. and at least for me and, and for this reviewer too, it, it kind of sticks in the craw a bit. There's a sense that everybody could have this kind of book written about them, but that only certain people ever actually do. And it does. It feels unjust somehow that if uh, there was another couple who had the same uh, lengthy marriage that Joan Didion and her husband did. And if the husband died at the same time that Joan Didion's husband died, and if his widow spent a year or two writing a brief but eloquent and moving and mournful book 
about their relationship and about love and about death. And in Didion's case, about being someone who is in mourning, who doesn't have the props or the consolation of religion. If there was some parallel version of Didion out there who wrote an equally amazing book about her husband, uh, he, she would have a very hard time, I'm sure, getting that book published, getting the memories of her love and her husband into print and in front of people. But because it's a Joan Didion, and because her husband was also a writer, and because they know all these people, and because they've lived the, life that, that lived the lives that they had, it's, uh, it's a no-brainer that the book is going to get published. And while on the one hand I think that I have some work to do in dealing with that kind of jealousy of, of actively being upset about a situation like that, I do think that the situation itself is worth talking about. If I believe in talking about any of the buzzwords that are around these days, uh, privilege does seem to be one of them. But then, uh, just earlier this week, I came across uh, somebody else worth talking about in this case, and that is, let me get his name right, a, um, let's see, where is he? Just had it here. Uh, the name of the writer is, um, boy, I just had it up. Let me see, let me go back up here. Uh, Isidore Isu, who lived from 1925 to 2007. He was a Romanian-born French poet, novelist, film director, visual artist, and theorist, who is best known for uh, a literary movement called Lettrism, uh, which owed inspiration to Dada and Surrealism. All I have about this guy comes from his Wikipedia page, by the way. But I was struck by what his literary movement uh, was about. And it might be worth just reading the, the part from Wikipedia about this. Um, Isidore Isu first invented um, this, uh, this movement by talking about the amplic and the chiseling phases of literature. And I'll, this sounds horrible just saying it. I'll just speed right through it just so you can get to what, I, what I'm getting to. Uh, he's trying to think about the history of poetry. He says that the beginning phase of poetry was initiated by Homer, who set out a blueprint for what a poem ought to be. Subsequent poets developed this blueprint, investigating by means of their work all the different things that could be done within the Homeric parameters, namely narrative, character, action, and the rest. Eventually, however, everything that could be done within that approach to poetry had been done. In poetry, Isu felt that this point was reached with Victor Hugo, and when amplic poetry, this phase of poetry, had been completed, there was simply nothing to be gained by continuing to produce works constructed 
according to this old model. There would no longer be any, any genuine creativity or innovation involved, and hence no aesthetic value. And that's when you get to the Dadaist and Surrealist stuff, which would have excited me when I was 20, but no longer obviously does. And so that his idea of what poetry would become, uh, Isu's idea for the poem of the future was that it should be purely formal and devoid of all semantic content. And uh, as much as I can get angry or lose my mind reading something, um, that did it for me. And maybe Wikipedia uh, doesn't do this guy justice. And if anyone knows anything more about him, uh, send me an email. But uh, the idea that this is the kind of philosophy or uh, art theory or poetry theory that gets attention these days or that gets a long entry in Wikipedia uh, is infuriating to me and it makes me, as this post is called, it makes me jealous because it is everything that you uh, have come to imagine from uh, the uh, the depths of modernism and postmodernism that everything that came before is garbage. Uh, we have to reinvent everything, but the reinvention uh, can't actually be about anything that means anything. And it seems all uh, it seems uh, entirely ridiculous to me. But then you come to the but. I realize that my reaction to him is. Uh, so intense, because at least in in this podcast and in the poetry that I write, I realize that all I'm doing is the exact opposite of what he's doing. I am reacting to poetry and coming to the opposite conclusion, not the conclusion that we can't go back to Homer, that we can't go back to narrative poetry or poetry that expresses something about uh, that can tell the story of history or can tell the story of a people or in the religious sense that it can uh, become liturgical again, that poetry can become bardic again. Uh, for Isu, this is ridiculous, but for me, that's the thing. That is the only thing worth doing with poetry these days is trying to get it back to that place. And that was striking to me to see that I was jealous of the attention that this uh, intellectual who has been dead for more than 10 years is still getting, when really aren't he and I doing sort of the same thing, just from opposite ends. And that seems important to realize. I realize more and more these days that if I have an adverse reaction to an idea or to a person that feels particularly intense, what I need to do before expressing that is sort of pull back and see if what I'm actually doing is not reacting or criticizing something that is actually within myself, not in the other person. I've mentioned before the ridiculous feeling that I had when I read Ovid's Metamorphoses, 
and the even more ridiculous feeling that I had afterwards, because I realized that my negative reaction towards reading Ovid was in the idea that we were both trying to do the same thing, uh, trying to tell the story of history through poetry, and that I didn't agree with the way he was doing it, um, if you can feel jealous of Ovid or of Homer in that kind of way. And, and so it seemed worth realizing that. And I was interviewed recently by the Jewish Literary Journal, and what I came out with in saying at one point was that it's not enough to write poetry. It's not enough to understand the history of poetry or to be able to enjoy it on a technical as well as an emotional level. And I said to the interviewer that I wonder if um, I wonder if there is an MFA class that you take after the technical part is done, after you have read a bunch of poetry and written a bunch of poetry, you've had other students, other classmates, other teachers comment on your stuff. There should be a class after that, not about how to write poetry, but how to live as a poet, how to best live as a creative person. And I don't mean to say not get caught up in these kinds of jealousies, but how to live with them when they do come up, how to live with them fruitfully. Because the third thing that happened, we're going from Joan Didion to a Hungarian Dadaist, uh, or Romanian Dadaist surrealist from the 50s. We're going from there to uh, the son of the actor, Tom Hanks, and I want to get his, his name right. it doesn't mention. Uh, Chet. His name is Chet Hanks. Um, I saw a headline on CNN just two days ago. Actually, I think it was just yesterday. Yes, yesterday was only Friday after all. And uh, it mentioned that Chet Hanks had just started a YouTube channel and where he is reflecting on being the son of a famous actor. And all it had uh, on CNN uh, was a screenshot from the talk, and it's a guy uh, without a shirt on, covered in tattoos, and behind him is what looks like a very spacious uh, home or apartment uh, on the beach in California. And that was all I needed to know, apparently, to pass all of these judgments on this guy as to uh, what, could, what uh, could someone with his background possibly have to say of any value to the world? And of course, if you go and listen to it, if you go and listen to what he said, it's about 12 or 13 minutes. Uh, he says, he, he mentions being the victim of the very, all the, all the different points of jealousy that I've brought up here. Uh, and the ones that I saw just by seeing a, seeing a screen grab from CNN. Uh, the assumption that someone who was uh, born rich and who only went to private schools can't possibly understand the lives of other people. Uh, the assumption that someone in that position 
can't possibly say anything that could help humanity or help other people, um, or just what it was like being uh, someone like that in high school, where someone, I mean, high school is bad enough and to suddenly be a rich actor's son, where everyone assumes that you're just going to be uh, an asshole and a brat and a shithead. Uh, there's almost, it, it would be an almost impossible way to try and prove people wrong. And then, towards the very end of it, he says something that also hit home, because not only was not only was what he was saying the the reaction that I needed to hear to my memory of walking uh, home from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, not only can people uh, who have a lot of money and were born into it, not only can they contribute things, but uh, he also says right at the end uh, something like, I do all of these things off the cuff. I don't want to have them scripted. I want to just prepare my mind to come out and say these things. And that struck me because that's basically how I approach these episodes, uh, at least the autobiographical ones where I'm not reading something. Um, I have an idea in mind. I might have some notes, but I don't want it to be something that is scripted and prepared. I want to see where my, where my mind goes, and that has been the most fruitful way of doing these things. And putting these three people together, Joan Didion and uh, our uh, Romanian friend and the son of Tom Hanks, I come back to the same point that I had. On the one hand, it is true that uh, by being the son of Tom Hanks or of having whatever position handed to him that he has, that he automatically, Chet Hanks automatically has a door open for him that I never will. Um, there is a sense that, let me see if I can find it here. There, here we go. Uh, there is a, there is a sense that since attention, since being heard and being seen, is our most important commodity these days, there is a sense that while the rest of us are doing nine to five jobs or childcare or are destitute, there there is the sense that there are just dipshits out there, who are able because of their position or their family or their past, uh, they are able to game social media, the regular media, or culture and religion and politics in general, and that we spend, many of us out there, spend the majority of our lives uh, being had by these people and by the machine that they've created, that we have no actual access to entering. On the other hand, there has to be another way of dealing with that, because that can't be the only story. When you assume that that is the only story, you have, uh, at least to my mind, what happens when Trump was elected, where you have an entire working class of a uh, of the most affluent country in the world and that the world has ever seen, believing that everyone except this buffoon is against them, 
when that is actually far from uh, far from the truth. Um, there has to be a way of dealing, as I said in my episode on fame, of dealing with the actual privilege of certain people who who have gotten to positions um, that have nothing to do with their own abilities and and the mere chance of so much of this. There has to be a way of dealing with that humanely. And since most of us will never have our opinions heard anywhere on this uh, ever, I don't think, at least uh, as far as my current listenership goes, that more than 100 or maybe 200 people will ever even hear this. And out of them, how many of them are still listening at minute 28? There has to be a way for people who will never be heard or will hardly ever be heard from dealing with this situation. And as my conclusion was in uh, my episode on fame, part of that has simply been to not be online nearly as much as I was, not to even read book reviews nearly as much as I have, not to feed into whatever the literary or filmmaker or whatever it is, gossip that is going around about book deals, movie deals, advances, and all of that stuff, because it doesn't do anything for the soul and I suppose the best thing that I can do when I turn this off is to just go back to doing the actual writing that I believe I was put here to do. And, and so all of this comes from a memory of walking home late one night from a museum and wanting to put up my defenses and assuming that... Uh, whole swaths of people couldn't possibly get it the way I do because my nine-to-five job has to have some kind of meaning coming out of that misery. And this all sort of came out of realizing, well, that is also uh, a pile of garbage as well, and that I need to do better, and that artists and creative people would do well to not only reflect on how they get their writing done, but as I've said, how they take out the garbage, how they do day-to-day things. And if anyone out there uh, has any anecdotes in their own lives or from the lives of people they've read about or heard about, about how other people handle all of this, uh, do send me an email and I will leave it here for now at a good half hour. Have a good night. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.